2020 Tour de France is just around the corner, and we here at Vela News again have our annual Tour de France guide, which is the perfect companion to help you follow along with the race. You can pre-order yours now at VeloPress. Go to www.velopress.com, order yours, and you'll have it just in time for the tour. So again, we have our traditional guide content. We have detailed analysis of all 21 stages and profiles on all 22 teams. Uh, this year, we also have Jens Voigt weighing in with hot takes on all the stages and his expert analysis on who could win, what kind of stage it's going to be, whether or not a breakaway rider like him could succeed. Uh, this year, we have some great feature stories that shed new perspective on the race. We have a piece that examines the 1947 Tour de France, which was the first race held after World War II, and it explores how that year's race helped France recover from six years of war and Nazi occupation. Uh, we interview four surviving riders from that era who share their perspective on the 2020 race and uh, explore how the race being held in the era of COVID is both similar and different from what it was like back in 1947. We also have a great feature story that explores the simmering heavyweight battle at this year's Tour de France between Tim Ineos and Team Yumbo Visma. Both of these squads are coming in with three protected GC leaders, and that's a first-ever occurrence for the race. So we explore where each team has an edge over the other. As always, great pieces on tech, tour history, some stuff on how the race is trying to protect teams, riders, and fans from coronavirus, and just great content that explores this race and why it is so different. So again, it's the 2020 Velo News Tour de France guide on sale now. Go to velopress.com, pre-order yours today. Okay, let's get back to the podcast. Uh, welcome back to the Velo News Podcast. Fred Dreyer coming to you from a sunny Tuesday here in Boulder, Colorado. We have wrapped production on the annual Tour de France guide. You hear me talk at the top of the show. It's going to be on sale soon. Pre-order yours now, veloprost.com. A lot of work went into this one, folks. Lots of details, agonizing over the route. Uh, a lot of the route information not out there yet, and we had to uh, dig far and wide to get all of the details about the route, uh, team rosters, and really cool reporting. I am so psyched on the feature stories we have in this issue. Hey, great podcast coming up this week. Uh, we are going to have hot takes, analysis, and all sorts of thoughts on the blockbuster news that Chris Froome is going to leave Team Ineos at the end of the year and jump ship for Team Israel Startup Nation. This is a huge earth-shaking, continental-shifting type story that we don't see every year or even every couple years in pro cycling. Chris Froome is a guy who is synonymous with Team Sky and Team Ineos, and he is leaving the squad to try uh, and continue winning the Tour de France with a totally untested new team. And we're going to link up with Andrew Hood and James Start to talk about the ramifications of this and the historical significance. Second half of the show, I have a great interview with Magnus Sheffield. Magnus is probably the brightest and strongest young junior man in the U.S. development ranks. You may remember he won the bronze medal at the UCI Road World Championships last year after helping Quinn Simmons win the gold. Uh, Magnus races for the Hot Tubes team. He's just, you know, he's on the trajectory towards the pros, hopefully the world tour. He's on his way up. And we talk all about how the racing shutdown this year has impacted his trajectory and the junior development scene in general. You may have remembered last year. Last year, I did a ton of reporting around the uh, U.S. junior development ranks and how we have all these riders coming into cycling through NICA, but the actual pipeline of getting them to the pro ranks is pretty shaky. And the whole system ground to a halt this year due to coronavirus. And we talk with Magnus about how that impacted him and some of the other riders in his cohort. So we're going to start off with Andrew Hood and James Start. Then we'll hear from Magnus Sheffield. Again, thanks for tuning in to the Velo News podcast. Uh, and if you're interested in that Tour de France guide, velopress.com, order yours today. Okay, let's link up with James Start and Andrew Hood. The blockbuster news story that we had been following in pro cycling over the last few weeks has finally uh, come to fruition. And that, of course, is that Chris Froome, four-time Tour de France champion, is indeed bidding adieu to Team Sky Ineos and switching to Israel Startup Nation for 2021 and beyond. 
on a, a strange deal that seems to encompass like the remainder of Chris Froome's um, professional career. Anyway, there's so much to talk about with this story, what it means for the 2020 Tour de France, what it means for Chris Froome, what it means for various people's legacies, and what it means for the sport going forward. And I'm very happy to have two experts in the world of pro cycling on the line today, James Start coming to us from Paris, France, and Andy Hood, of course, from the Man Cave uh, there in northern Spain. James, I'm going to start with you. Um, I heard through the grapevine that you are logging pro cyclist level miles these days in preparation for the Tour de France, like 400k a week. Um, what's going on here? I mean, are you, do you have like some humongous Grand Fondo or some big challenge to get ready for? What What's up with the big rides? Dude, I haven't had a goal or objective in years, probably decades. I have no desire for that. I just like when the weather is right, I like to ride my bike. And I'm certainly enjoying the fact that I'm not on the Tour de France in July. And for the first time in 30 years, really, between uh, I've been able to like string together three months at home of just consistent riding. I've been able to get my weight down, uh, getting a little what we, you know, what I remember something that, that, that we used to call being road fit. That was such an abstract term for me for so many years, but I'm kind of feeling like I'm re- remembering what that means again and just feeling good because I know. And then also, obviously, um, starting uh, August 1st, I'm going to head down to Strade Bianchi and it's all over after that, man, this, you know, Strade Bianchi, I'm going to do the Ventoux, the Dauphiné, the Tour, uh, you know, we're all figuring our schedules out. I could very well be doing the Giro, a big part of the Giro, a bunch of classics, who knows, it's just going to be, it's going to be brutal after that. And I'm not going to be riding my bike. So wanted to, I'm really maximizing it here. Watch out, French group rides. James Starr is fit and looking to uh, rip some legs off. Andy Hood, going over to you, I have been stalking you on social media. It sounds like you um, have taken a few beach trips in the last week and documented very well how the Spanish beachgoers, similar to American beachgoers, not really adhering to COVID-19 precautions, not a lot of face masks or social distancing. Have you been been chiding these Spanish people or just sort of documenting them on social media the way that uh, everyone tends to do now? Yeah. Yeah. It's been quite shocking how, you know, it's weekend warrior type thing, you know, it's like uh, you go skiing veil on a Saturday, it's going to be packed. You go there on a Tuesday, there's no one there. So unfortunately uh, we can only travel on the weekends and it's been packed. I mean, the weather's been great and it's only Spanish people. And there's no, there's no foreigners at all at the beaches. And uh, we're up in Northern, Northern Spain this past couple of weekends and uh, the water is so cold. That's why there's no big hotels or, you know, it's not a real well-known tourist destination. Everyone goes down to Malaga and Mallorca and Canarias because the water up North, it's cold. So it sure is. Uh, you put your, you dip your toes in, and then you just uh, enjoy the good seafood and the and the great scenery because it's pretty spectacular up there. Awesome, guys. Well, hey, let's get into it. The big news: Chris Froome going from Team Ineos to ICA. Before we get into the ramifications, the historical significance, hoodie, um, what can you tell us about how this deal came together and what the elements are of this deal that really make it unique? Yeah, I, I had a chance to talk to Sylvan Adams. The uh, team owner of Israel's cycling startup nation on Friday afternoon. And he was telling me that, uh, you know, funny enough, he, he just saw it on some, uh, saw it on Chris Froome's uh, Twitter or some story that maybe Velenews had written about or somebody just talking about how Chris Froome was unhappy and that he just literally reached out to Froome. He had met him during the 2018 Giro. And he said uh, it was really just a couple of conversations. Um, came together pretty fast. Uh, it wasn't something that was ongoing for months and months. It was something that happened, I think, just really within the last month or so. And uh, what was unique about this deal, Fred, you're right, is it, it's an open-ended deal. Uh, they're refusing to tell us how many years it's for, um, which, you know, typically these days, teams will reveal how long the deal is for, two, three, four years, whatever it is. And in this case, it's not that they don't want to reveal it. It's just that they don't know how long Chris is going to race. So the, the deal is... Chris Froome can race as long as he wants to, as long as he has the motivation, as long as he has the fitness. He can race to like Valverde's age if he wants to. He has He's going to finish his career at Israel Startup Nation. That's what Sylvan Adams confirmed to me on Friday. What kind of numbers are we talking about in terms of uh, payment? Again, you know, Sylvan Adams loves to talk, but man, he was not giving away some of these juicy details. I was kind of, you know, the old school journal, just going in there with all the kind of these details that weren't in the press release. 
he wouldn't give it away. Rumors going on the street where it was very similar to what he's getting paid currently at Ineos. Uh, that is an unconfirmed number as well. You know, the numbers floating around of four to five million per. So, uh, you know, I don't know if that's going to be what he'll be making every year if he races till his till he's forty. But uh, Silver Adams has got the money. Uh, he's a billionaire construction uh, magnate from Canada who relocated, repatriated uh, to Israel a few years ago. And it's quite an extraordinary story, too, about Sylvan Adams, you know, how he's come into that team and just lifted it up. You know, this year's the world tour, and now he's got Chris Froome. So big deal. Uh, really kind of just shakes up so many different things. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of, I, I'm, you know, this whole, till the end of your career thing is, is is a bit confusing, and he, he announced the exact same thing with Andre Greipel, and you know he signed Greipel, and Greipel you know is older than Froome and hasn't had a result in how long? I don't know. I think the last stage he won was a stage in the Amisa Bongo in Gabon last year, two years ago, and you know the same thing. Um, you'd have to really see the contract, and if that's no hole, let, let's say let's say Froome doesn't get any results, and he still wants to be paid what he's being paid. Well. You know, then the guy's going to go, well, actually, maybe uh, we won't be around for the end of your career because somebody else might have to pay you what you want because we're not going to pay you because you're not getting the results you used to get. I mean, I don't, I'd like to know what's going on with that, but how they can come out and so boldly say that, you know, hell or high water, Chris Froome's going to finish his career with us. Yeah, there's a number of mainstream American sports comparisons here just with the dynamics. And one of the first things that popped into my mind was the um, the dynamic you often see when there's a new owner that buys their way into like the NBA or NHL or NFL, which is that they come in and they really want to make a splash. They're new on the scene and they want to have some marquee free agent signing that like vaults them to the top of the list and makes the fans really happy. And, you know, here's Sylvan Adams. He's had the team for a number of years. This is the first year in the world tour. And it's just like, we need a marquee signing, man. We got Dan Martin and Andre Greipel, that's pretty good. But, oh, Chris Froome, bam. Like, I have made yeah. a mark, landed the big fish. But what you yeah. often see in, in mainstream sports is these guys going out and signing a big free agent. But, yeah, it's someone who's not at the peak of their powers. Maybe it's someone who's coming back from an injury or, like, a big name who maybe has lost some value because of injury or age or whatever. And sometimes you see these things going dramatically wrong where, like, the big free agent signing becomes a millstone around the neck of the team because, you know, so much salary has been guaranteed to them. I don't... Now, no, if I see that happening with ICA, because it does sound like Sylvan Adams has pretty deep pockets, but I just, that was the first thing that popped into my mind was like, oh, the newest owner on the block is wagging his fist at everybody and saying, look what I just bought, you know, the, the right. biggest fish out there. Yeah. Well, and, you know, I mean, the other thing, looking at cycling history here, you know, there's not a whole lot of managers or team owners that are going to put the money down on the table before they've seen a result for a rider who's been off the bike for so long. Um, you know, most people, I remember, you know, most people like if they're really pushing for a contract before the tour, that's a bad sign to a lot of managers. That's a sign that the guy doesn't really believe in himself has any questions. He's trying to work out the best deal before. Um, I'm not saying that's the case with Froome. Um, Cause I mean, Froome, I, I actually, Bad said, and I still think that he could really win this Tour de France because I think this Tour de France is going to be so much about who can prepare the most at home. We know he can do that, um, and uh, and I th I don't have any doubt that he's very very hungry. And a lot of times when you see these things go south, it's because the guy's trying to still cash in, but he's not that hungry anymore. Hoodie, when you saw this news and as you saw this story unfolding over the last few weeks. What was your perspective and impression on the Brailsford slash Team Ineos side of things? Why uh, was there potentially this tension with Chris Froome and ultimately him leaving the team? I mean, what does it mean for that squad? Yeah, good question, Fred. I think the big takeaway for me was a couple of uh, things uh, in terms of it clearly showed that Brailsford is banking uh, the future of the team on Egon Bernal. Um, you know, you don't cut loose a guy like Froome, who's your franchise rider. Um, you know, typically when a team loses a, a Froome-like character, like, you know, you look back at the teams, most teams just kind of fall off the map when they lose their marquee rider. So it shows you Bern that Bernal is their new guy. 
it shows you how much money that Brailsford has that he can you know afford to let go of a guy who's won seven grand tours and he has in his pocket Bernal, Garrett Thomas, and all those other guys that he's been recruiting the last couple of years, Kyle Boss. So it shows how much money Brailsford has. And it also shows to me that for, for Brailsford, the only thing that matters is winning. I mean, he is ruthless. So we have to we have to ask ourselves, you know, is there something that Brailsford knows in when, you know, they're looking at Froome's numbers? You know, maybe they know just, you know, you know how there's no hiding today with all the power meters. So maybe they can see something there with Froome that says, you know, red flags are going off with the trainers there and saying, hey, you know, Froome is not going to be back at winning Tour de France level races ever again. You know, that's just speculation on my part. Um, but all those things were just mixed up and it's just a blockbuster deal. The biggest one I think we've seen really in cycling for many years, probably since, you know, uh, maybe when Sagan signed with Tinkoff, there's some similarities there where a new owner comes in, flashes around his checkbook, and uh, some smart people took advantage of that, got quite rich on the deal. But in that case, of course, Sagan delivered as well as, uh, you know, I, I agree with James. I think Froome, if anybody can get through what he came through uh, and win again, it's Chris Froome. Yeah. Andy, I agree with you on all those points except one. Uh, I don't think it's a sign of how much money Brailsford has. In fact, it could also be a sign that he had to get rid of some somebody because he picked up Carapaz, because he had to pay extra for, for Bernal, who's now winning the Tour. And it, obviously, I agree with you, he cares firstly about winning, but you know, it would have been nice, you would think, to have a five-time Tour winner. He doesn't have that. Um, Bernal could obviously come back and win afterwards. But you got a guy who you know, could potentially win five tours and, and, and you know, on your team, equal Bernardino, uh, uh, Merckx and, and Alcatil and, and, you know, Indoran and, and other le- and legends like that. And and you're you're signing off on that. And now Bernal might very well win five or ten tours, but you're going to have to wait to find out. And um, so I think – but that that could either that, – that, that, that second argument could very well be that he has some information on numbers, like you said – so we don't, but um, it's it's curious that he made such little effort to uh, to keep Froome. It seems to me. Yeah, it's it's definitely a sign that Dave Brailsford does not pay for past performances. It's like you are as good as your most recent as you are as good as your future result. Like, you know, we saw that with Wiggins. I remember that was the big kerfuffle after 2012, which was like. Bradley Wiggins will not be defending his Tour de France title. He will be shipped off to the rainy Giro where he's going to get off his bike and be kind of a pain in the butt. And that's it, you know? And it was like, yeah, you won the Tour de France last year and you won the Olympics and you are Britain's most famous athlete right now. Doesn't mean a thing. Got a guy coming up who's younger and stronger and I'm not paying for past performances. So, yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, it's like, that also tells us a lot about, like you said, like Brailsford and you can kind of read between the lines of what, how he, how he fused legacy, which is like, it's not being part of a five time Tour de France champions winning legacy. It's being part of a team's seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, whatever time Tour de France winning legacy. That's what's important to the man holding the purse strings at uh, team Ineos. Well, um, yeah, I would, I would agree with that, uh, Fred. I was just wondering, is that how you operate with us? Like, you know, <laughs> we're only as good as our last web story. It doesn't matter yeah. how many web stories you've done, Hoodie. It only matters what, what you did yesterday, mate. No, it's how many, how many clicks you got on your last web story. Yeah, exactly. Like, you know, Dostoevsky that you write, and, you know, it's like it, it didn't pull a lot of hits. You're out of here. Yeah, man. Past performances are great, but uh, what are you going to do for me tomorrow? I mean, you see that in the NFL. I mean, the NFL just got done with this huge blockbuster deal of Tom Brady, six-time Twitter, you know, uh, the Super Bowl champion, just walking away from the New England Patriots and the the GM of the Patriots just saying, yeah, okay, great. You know, that that's great. Go get a bigger contract somewhere else. I'm not paying you for past performances. What what can you do for me today? It's a ruthless way to run a sports team, but ultimately, you I guess you do have to have a certain amount of respect for that, that it's victories and that's it. That's all that matters. Well, you know, we saw that back in the in the days with the French team when you had uh, uh, on the Jetan team. You know, you had you had Bernard Hinault, who was the greatest rider, and then he he was started struggling with the injuries. Fignon won a tour. You got Greg LeMond coming up, and all of a sudden, Guimard just sort of turned off on 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 Hinault, and and that, that they still have some bad blood on that today. And I mean, Hinault came back after you know a year off the bike and and uh, won another tour. Um, 
but it was, you know, it was pretty fascinating. It's pretty fascinating how these managers and directors work and how, how Machiavellian they can be sometimes, you know? So, Hoodie, what does this mean for the 2020 tour in the short term? We're, you know, a month and a half away from the 2020 tour. Froome is slated to race the tour, but, you know, we've definitely seen instances in the past where a guy announces he's leaving a team and all of a sudden the team leaves him at home for some marquee events. Um, what do you see happening in the short term? Yeah, that's that's the big question. It's going to be fun to chase those those little threads over the next couple of weeks while we're still not we're not in lockdown anymore, but we're still got the COVID cloud kind of tweaking with our happy little worlds here. Um, thank God everyone's safe and at home and everyone's doing well so far, at least among our team. But, um, you know, the big question really for me is, you know, is Froome even going to race the tour? Everyone just kind of assumes that he is. Uh, but, you know, we've seen in the past when big riders are leaving and managers know it, uh, you know, it just seems to me odd that they announce this. You know, they're supposed to be this August 1st deadline for transfers. Uh, the word was, and I'm hearing is that, the team Ineos just didn't want any more distraction of this going into you yeah. know, going into the tour because that's what everyone was asking about every time anybody got somebody on the phone was, hey, what's up with Froome? So that was one reason they wanted to get that out of the way with this kind of strange, uh, you know, er, er, mid-season announcement of this, of this big transfer. And then, uh, you know, really, how is that going to work inside the team Ineos bus? I mean, the bus has been, you know, the team's been basically Froome's team that's in 2019, where they started to evolve into this kind of multi-pronged approach with Garen Thomas and uh, Bernal coming up. So, you know, maybe having three at the top of that uh, power chart might be too much. You know, maybe, you know, Froome might not go because if they think that Froome could be this kind of a renegade solo flyer and race for his own race, that's the last thing Brelsford wants is to get. He wants the team to win. But by doing that, disrupting the kind of all the harmony inside the team, that might open up the team for attacks from, you know, you got Jumbo Visma and some pretty serious uh, uh, combatants this year in the tour. I mean, if I, obviously, if I was Chris Froome and I was going there and I knew this is my last tour, I would be doing, I would go there like Bernard Hinault did in 1986. And, and you know, going on the attack and putting Greg LeMond on the, on the defensive. Go, you know, I mean, all of a sudden you're going to ha- you have a tour team that's as strong as, say, the Kooning Quink step at, 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 at Perry Roubaix. And what happens? It's often the, the quick step rider that can go the earliest that wins. And all those quick step guys know that if they can make the first decisive move, they force all their teammates to work for them. And Froome, if he, if I were Froome, that's what I'd be thinking. It's like, where can I make an early mark? Where can I blow this thing open, get some advantage, and force Bernal and Thomas to work for me? And that might not play into the team game. And we've seen before, Froome is not afraid to do that. 2018, the Cold Dew Portet Big Summit finish. It was like a 139K stage. You know, Thomas is in yellow, and they get to the base of the Cold Dew Portet, and Froome takes off with uh, Primoz Roglic and gets a gap, and he's chugging away. And it wasn't until months later that we found out that he, he announced his intention to do that the night before in a team meeting, and Brailsford did not shoot him down. And Thomas thought it was a little weird. It was like, hey, man, I'm in yellow, and you're telling everyone that you're going to have a bottom-to-top attack tomorrow, and uh, instead of just you know being my lieutenant, you're going to go for it. Um, and I always thought that that dynamic was extremely interesting because it was almost like he was calling Brailsford's bluff of like, are you going to tell me to to cool out or are you going to let this one play out on the road? And we saw that Brailsford let it play out on the road. I, I think it would be... I think it would be a huge scandal if Brailsford, Brailsford decided to leave him at home. And I think it would not reflect well on Brailsford and his legacy going forward. I think it would be a addition to the Wikipedia page afterwards of like, this guy, you know, denied Froome a chance at his fifth Tour de France victory with all of the bells and whistles of Team Ineos. Um, will, does that mean he won't do it? No, he's a shoot operator. He could very well do it. But as a fan, I would be... I would throw my hands up. I'd be really upset if uh, Froome got left yeah, at home. Yeah, but a lot, a lot of fans, uh, a lot of British fans are very upset when he did just that with with Wiggins. Uh, he's shown in, in, in the past he can do that. And he'll spin it, not saying we're going to leave you at home because uh, we think you're just going to screw everything up for us. He just said, oh, we've decided and, uh, you know, that, um, that Chris has decided he really wants to have another go at the Giro. Uh, and uh, we're going to focus on that with him this year. Isn't that great, everybody? <laughs> you know? That's the sort of spin you put on that. 
Dude, James, that's why we need journalists need to be at the tour this year. You know, if yeah. we're gonna keep it all in pens behind, you know, do WhatsApp chats with riders, you know, we need to have the journalists to be there. Uh -huh. Call raise the head up and call somebody's bluff in a press conference or you know, around the team bus. We'll see. We're, we're gonna be there, dude. I, I got this will be number thirty one for me, and you got about what, twenty seven? Hey, well, we all know Brailsford likes to ride his bike throughout the tour. We've all seen him like riding up to us and stuff like that. I think that's just going to be the new media angle is uh, running alongside the road while Brailsford's riding up, you know, 6 a.m. riding, getting his ride in up at, uh, up to, you know, the Tourmalet or whatever and scream questions at him that way while adhering to social distancing rules and mask wearing, of course. I'm really going to be curious. I mean, you know, this also begs. The question, you know, how is Froome going to do on another team? I mean, does anybody remember Chris Froome at Barolo World? No. I mean, Chris Froome's whole identity in it is, as, a, as a winner that was made with this team. Is he going to be able to stay on his bike if he doesn't have an armada like like Sky or Ineos just guiding him, you know? Well, who knows? I mean, we see these things all, these things happen all the time. The guy gets out of the – he's you know, he gets out of that chain – and all of a sudden he has to fend for himself more and all of a sudden can't stay on his bike as much. And you find that, I mean, you know, there's a lot of other problems. I mean, obviously a lot of this is going to depend on what kind of team they build around uh, Israel cycling and him. And, you know, that, that team's got a lot of sprinters right now. And I think they're going to have a lot less next year because they're, they're going to have to give a major facelift to the team. But it'll be curious the kinds of riders that he brings on to try to recreate that train for him. I got to say, seeing Chris Froome away from Fortress Froome is one of the biggest storylines that I'm interested in seeing in the years to come. It's one thing that is actually getting me pretty excited about cycling in the years to come because, yeah, for this last generation, it's like the question has always been like, who's more valuable at winning the tour, Chris Froome or Fortress Froome? You know, can you separate the man from the train that's, you know, stomping out everyone else? And what happens if you divorce the two from each other? And so I'm really interested to to see that. I, I would love nothing more than to see Chris Froome win a Tour de France or try to win a Tour de France without um, a lineup of big, expensive domestiques just, you know, stomping the breath out of everyone else at the Tour de France. Um, when I think oh, about Israel startup nation and what it needs to do because hoodie you know in your conversation with sylvan adams he did say ah oh, well we're gonna like gonna open up the checkbook even more and invite a bunch of new riders onto the team to like build you know this team around from i just started looking through their roster and oh my they have a lot of work to do they have a ton of work to do because like, like james work, said you know it's it's a lot of sprinters but beyond that it's just it, there's not a ton of experience on the squad's roster you know the the team itself, its stated mission up to this point has been to take Israeli riders and develop men and develop them and, and bring them into the pros. And so, like, if you have Chris Froome on your roster and you need to build this team with all these all-star domestiques, like, what happens to the team's stated mission? Are there still going to be a bunch of Israeli guys who, you know, don't have household names on the roster? Are they still going to have sprinters? Like, I think only a couple of guys on the team have multi-year deals, but... They're they're going to have to push the reset button in a big way. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I first like looking here. Dan Martin obviously would be uh, a tremendous uh, tremendous uh, help if he signs and stays with him. Niels Polet obviously would be tremendous uh, for all the flats and the tricky you know tricky middle stages. Uh, Sutherland is you know obviously a great a road captain, but uh, that's kind of where it's at. I see three riders there that could actually be part of a. Or Tour de France uh, team for built around Chris Froome. Yeah, when when I was talking to Sylvan, um, he basically said that uh, you know, right now there's only about 12 guys that have contracts for next year, and only I think my count was three or four of those had even raced the Tour de France before. So I totally agree with Fred that this is this is going to be a basically bottom up rebuild on this team. Uh, Sylvan Adams also said they're looking, they're shopping. Rumors are going around. Guys like the Izguire brothers, uh, Miguel Angel Lopez, some writers like that might be coming in. Maybe, uh, I think Politz is actually out the door already. A lot of those, oh, guys, a lot yeah. those Katusha guys are out. They were just kind of had carryover contracts from that right. merger. Those guys, all those Katusha guys are mainly gone. Well, that's true. Um, be a tremendous writer for uh, Chris and the Flats. Yeah, so, uh, you know, Greibel won't be going to the door. you got eight-man yeah. squad. No. So they're going to have to basically open up the checkbook and buy four or five very expensive guys. 
Yeah. And, you know, who knows if Dan Martin wants to be carrying water for, for uh, Chris Froome. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Martin, you know, has got his own uh, his own career that he's, he's thinking about. Um, but, we'll, you know, we'll see where it goes. Uh, that said, you know, there's a lot of teams struggling uh, after Corona. Um, there's going to be maybe one or teams, one or two teams folding. There's going to be riders on the market. So here's the uh, three to f- or the four to five million euro question. Do we think Chris Froome wins the Tour de France again? Do we think he gets to number five or beyond? I'd say if he yeah. doesn't, go ahead. I think the big question is, is you know, we need to see Chris Froome race at that level again. We just don't know right now. It's hard yeah. to say. You know, if he was coming off of a, just a bad year or you know, relatively minor crash or something. But what happened to him last year at the Dauphiné was career-threatening. And all the indications are he's had this amazing recovery and this actually this this delay this caused by COVID is actually going to help him going into this year's tour. So I think it's pretty important for uh, Froome to come out of this, even if he doesn't win the tour this year, just to kind of demonstrate that he can race and be competitive at the, at the elite yeah. level. And my guess is he'll probably race, try to race two grand tours anyway because he, yeah. he's missed out on so much. We'll try yeah. to do the, probably the tour and the world yeah. if it's up to him. Yeah. And then, uh, yeah, then go into it next year with a rebuilt team and uh, and give it a, give it a go because – Everyone knows, I mean, Froome has this legendary focus and drive and work ethic that, you know, people can kind of shrug it off. It's like, oh, yeah, he didn't win the tour on his work ethic. But everyone talks about that that guy can just suffer more than anybody. So what does your gut tell you? What does your gut tell you? Hoodie, is he going to win it again or not? Uh, I don't know, man. (laughs) (laughs) I, I... I I had some I had some bad seafood this weekend, so my gut's all kind of messed up. Right? <laughs> how about you? How about you, James? Where's what's your gut telling you? Does he win the tour again? Well, you know, a couple a couple of weeks ago, you asked us to do our our pronastic, our, our our picks, and I had him. I picked him, or he gave us some sort of thing, you know, nine, ten, eight, seven, six, whatever. Um, I wouldn't vote against him, you know. I mean, it's just going to be such an odd race uh, that. I think, you know, I mean, we, we could find out on the first stage into the Alps that he's not going to win the tour. You know, we could just see very clearly that he's been off the, he hasn't been in racing for so long and, and maybe, you know, sitting in the third position on the team instead of the first protected position, he's, you know, all kinds of things. But I have a, I think on a physical level, he'll, he could very well uh, have the, have it, have, have it in for another one. And if he doesn't, and if he could still say finish on the podium, or go off and have another strong tour like the Vuelta. Well, that would be, you know, that would that would really build and set him up nicely for the next year, and maybe gets one more. But it's it's certainly not a given. But I certainly wouldn't vote against him. I say he does not win the tour ever again, and that's one of the reasons why I'm actually excited to cheer for him. You know, being a fan and a person following the sport during the Froome era, like it made it very easy to sort of criticize the guy and oh, he looks so crazy on the bike and Sky is snuffing the life out of the tour. And it's just from a storyline's perspective, it's just a really interesting and engaging twist in the Chris Froome tale. The fact that he's going to go to this other team on the brink of yeah. making history and try to he's gonna have to take on his old team to see him do it yeah. I, I don't think he will but i hope he does and i'll be cheering for him to do it yeah. I, I think he could win another grand tour but i don't know about the tour de france bernal is pretty good and uh brailsford knows all his tricks but then again he knows all of brailsford's tricks yeah for sure i was it's, it's it's funny because when you study the history of the tour and i, I actually wrote one of the, the first english-speaking history of the tour back in 2000 you know as a historian, you like the big narrative of the big champions, the first three-time winners, the first five-time winners, da 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 When you're on the ground covering it, you're in the middle of like, you know, a five, five-year victory. And the guy, you know, year in and year out, I'm thinking about like Indoran and how he just blew the race open at every, every, every time trial and how Froome would blow the, blow the race open at every – the first two days in the mountains. And it was game over. And it's, it's so boring when you're actually out there for three weeks trying to cover, trying to find stories. So – this is certainly going to, uh, I think, add uh, for some better st- storytelling on the on the ground. Yeah, just a little anecdote. No one who's ever won four tours has not won a fifth. Yeah. So he has history on his side, but he also has uh, all this kind of team politics and yeah. questions running against him. So I agree with both of you guys. I think it's going to be very interesting. And I agree with Fred, too. I'll, I'll be kind of cheering for Froome, even though I like to try to be, remain objective and keep my journalist hat on. But... You know, Froome is always just getting derided by all these people, you know, 
by the funny way he looks, the funny way he looks at his looks at his stem, he, his his knees are sticking out. He's not, but man, the dude can win bikes. Yeah, you can't deny that. Who who cares how he looks on the bike? To me, it's like uh, like Lee Trevino. I mean, I'm right. kind of showing my age, you know. I don't know if you ever saw these old golfers. I mean, everyone, all the golfers these days, you know, have these perfect swings, and it's kind yeah. of like all the all the bikers these days have the perfect pedaling style because it's oh, he doesn't. Good. Huh? But you know, like all these old guys, Lee Trevino, and yeah, uh, you know, I, I never even actually watched Lee Trevino myself, but I know he had a legendary odd swing. So it's like yeah. Broom just has this odd pedaling style, but man. He's like he wins bike races. You can't deny that. You know, I always consider. I always compared him to that. Uh, I was a Czech, Czechoslovakian long distance runner, Emil Zadopek, or something like that. The guy just looked like he looked so bad running. And his his and his his fists and his arms. He was almost punching himself with his fists as he's you know moving uh, his legs, but his legs were just uh, going so hard. And uh, it wasn't a pretty thing to see, but you know it, it was efficient. And Froome is efficient. And and you know the one thing. That we always criticize, he gets, I think, really dissed for is that, oh, he's so boring and such a machine, da 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 da. Well, you know, you remember when he's attacking with Peter Sagan down in the finish in Montpellier when he's attacking on the descents in the Pyrenees? He's, you know, you know, when you look at how he won the Giro, he's not always so predictable. He's not, you know, he, he knows how to, he knows how to, um, you know, take, take the race to, to everybody else and he knows how to imp- improvise, certainly. Well, Chris Froome, we will be following you at the 2020 Tour de France. Hopefully, we'll be following your storyline as you move to plucky Israel startup nation and perhaps turn that team into a world beater. So for James Start and Andrew Hood, I appreciate you guys coming on the podcast to talk about this storyline, and we will catch up with you next week. All right. You take care. Have a good week. The coronavirus shutdown has impacted every angle of pro cycling from the Tour de France all the way down to races we've probably never heard of. Um, Somewhere in between there, there is the U.S. development system. This is the teams, riders, races for um, junior and U23 riders that uh, are all skilled at are all geared at getting these riders to progress towards the professional ranks. And just like every angle of cycling, the U.S. development system has been impacted by the coronavirus shutdown. And that's what we're going to talk about today on this segment. I'm really psyched to be joined by Magnus Sheffield. Magnus races for the Hot Tubes program, a very successful junior development team out of the Northeast. You may have seen Magnus uh, race in the World Championships last year where he won the bronze medal, helped Quinn Simmons grab the gold medal, but we're going to talk to Magnus today all about what his 2020 has looked like and what impact it may have on his next few years trying to go from the junior ranks to the pro ranks. Magnus, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much for having me, Fred. So right now you are in uh, Park City, Utah, doing a little high altitude training. Normally you are based outside of Syracuse, New York. You know, First off, take me through the beginning part of this season. Uh, it sounds like you were able to get some racing under your belt, but then, like everyone else, end of February, beginning of March, the season ground to a halt. Yep. So uh, kind of what happened is I did a full cross season right after Road Worlds. So I took about a week off after England. I flew home, and then uh, I kind of picked up my cross bike and started racing almost immediately. Um, after that... Uh, I did a full uh, Euro season from December until February to in Crossroads. And then after that, I took another week off after Crossroads flying home from Switzerland. And then I flew to Arizona. And we had our first like small kind of team camp there. Um, and then we did our first race, which was Valley of the Sun. Um, that went super well. I won the time trial, and then I was able to um, – hold on to the GC until the final day in the crit. And I won the overall, which was super cool um, to kind of kick off the season like that and to kind of become the first junior to ever win the pro race there. Um, So I thought like 2020 was like, it was off to this like super cool start. Like I had great form. Uh, I was feeling really fresh. And then we went to Georgia. Um, It was kind of like we went from 85 and sunny to like 45. Um, and it was really cold. Is I mean, Georgia is like kind of variable during that time of the year, but um, that was also another good race. Um, 
And that was right when the coronavirus was really starting to hit uh, Europe, I want to say. It was like beginning or mid-February was still only in Asia or that we that we knew of at that time. Uh, it had already been in the U.S. actually now, I think people are saying. Um, but it wasn't until the Tour of Southern Highlands, uh, the girls' trip actually was canceled because they were going to fly right into Italy. And so all the juniors, like, we were all talking to each other and we were calling Billy and saying, like, hey, like, what's going to happen? And at that point, all we really knew and kind of what they were telling us was, like, hey, we still have the green light to go ahead, uh, fly to Europe. Uh, I think after Tosh, we had like two weeks and we we're going to fly to Europe, do some races. And then if it happened to get worse there, we were just going to quarantine ourselves and just um, stay in the sitter in the USA team house. Um, but then it took maybe four more days and it was just like a complete whirlwind and just everything was shut down. And then it was like they had USA Cycling had canceled all races. They had sanctioned or they had pulled all the permits for races. And then it was like a few days later after that, like my school was uh, shut down and we had gone completely online. Um, so it was like within a matter of, I want to say like a week and a half, um, the 2020 season just like came to a complete halt. And so you are 17 right now, correct? I turned 18 in April. You turned 18 in April. So this is your final year in the junior yep. category. And you know, traditionally the final year in the junior category is pretty important for juniors who are wanting to make that step up. You know, Quinn mm -hmm. Simmons won world championships his final year of junior. He's racing to the world tour. You know, a lot of guys use it as that, that year where, you know, you springboard into the U 23s, you get some really good results. And so as the months have gone along and more and more races have been canceled and nationals was recently canceled. I mean, how have you mentally processed the fact that this, your really important final year in the juniors, you know, the opportunities just aren't going to be there. What type of advice have you gotten and how have you processed this? Yeah. I mean, it's been really hard to be quite like honest with you. Um, in the beginning, um, there was like, there was a lot of talk amongst the teams. Like no one really knew who was going to survive this. I think there were a couple teams that like still felt like they were in a good spot. Uh, but it isn't until like now that um, we really, I think teams are kind of confident in like they will be able to rebound and they will have sponsorship from their uh, corporations for next year. So it's looking a lot better now than it was, I would say like a month ago. Uh, so there's a lot more hope in that sense. Um, but with all like the racing, it's like, I can't really express like how bummed I am truly like, especially after last year, like there were huge budget cuts to USA cycling. Um, and even though there were a lot of sacrifices that had to be made and a lot of changes, uh, we still had just like one of the best years we've had since I want to say Richmond when the world championship was there. Um, and like throughout all this, like this year was looking even better because now I think we got a lot of attention from a lot of people and we got even more funding. Uh, not just for like my trade team, but also USA Cycling got lots of donations. Um, and it was really targeted at these grassroots and uh, the development pipeline. And things were looking really good for this year in terms of the funding and the amount of races we would be able to do. Because last year it was really limited to the core, uh, only like four or five guys. And we only got to do a certain amount of Nations Cups. So this year was looking really promising. So to be able to, to miss out on it, like, it does really break my heart uh, because like I just, I love it so much and I pour so much into it and all the sacrifices that I make, but also like my teammates, the staff. And it's not just that it affects the racers, but it, like it affects like the mechanics, the swaneers, the directors. And so it's easy to get kind of really down on yourself and like to get really disappointed about it. But I think it's also like you have to put things into perspective and it's like, it is just bike racing at the end of the day. Like no one's dying or people are dying here. I'm not dying because I'm not bike racing. Uh, so I think that's really key to kind of keep in mind. And that's just like what people have told me. Like, it's almost like uh, people, it's like having an injury, but everyone has it. And in some ways, like it's a little bit easier because it's not like I'm not able to go out and train for like five, four or five hours. Like I'm still putting in like the same amount, like all the hard work. It's not like I'm being sidelined, sitting on the couch turning on the TV and watching my friends race. So that's kind of how I've looked at it. And I think a lot of people see like a lot of people race and like they 
use races for fitness. And I definitely do that as well. But kind of what I've learned is like, you don't necessarily need the races to have form and to sit, to be successful. And like a perfect example of that is like Rohan Dennis after last year, uh, after the tour, he left the tour, I think in the end of the first or second week and he didn't do a single race until worlds. Um, so that's kind of my inspiration and kind of what I've been kind of looking at leading into worlds is like, all right, there may not be racing. There may be racing. Um, it's not that I don't really care, but it's just like, I'm just going to make the most of the opportunity. Um, and that's kind of what my coach and I have done. And, um, there's ways to kind of simulate the racing. Like I've been doing a lot of motor pacing. Um, and it's really just, you, you just have to make the most of the situation. And the way that I've kind of dealt with it is that I can make my training just as hard, if not harder than these races. Um, and so that's really, I have a lot of confidence in my coach and his ability and, I think our relationship has definitely grown uh, exponentially through the pandemic. And um, I think that right now I'm in a really good place and I feel if not more confident going to the world championship now, because I think so many other guys uh, rely on these hard races to uh, race their way into sh uh, shape. Um, so I just feel really confident in my training and being able to um, be get to the start line at worlds and know that I've done everything possible. I think the tough part is that, you know, I, I have no doubt that and I've, I've been stalking you on Strava. I've been seeing your training. It's insane. You're putting in these huge miles. I'm like, Holy cow. I was not able to do that when I was uh, 18, but and you and I talked about this last year at the Siddard House. So much of the experience and the value you get from racing over in Europe and being part of, you know, the USA Cycling National Team and going into these races is not necessarily the fitness, but learning the dynamics of European racing, racing Junior Gentwevel Nations Cup, racing on the narrow lanes and in the big peloton that's aggressive and, you know, it being put in these situations that's very difficult to simulate in U.S. racing or even training and how, you know, being thrown into the washing machine of these races, like, teaches you the dynamics and the racing dynamics and the strategy that will eventually help you take the next step up. I mean, how do you try and wrap your head around losing that? How do you try and recreate that or um, just try and get those experiences going forward? Yeah, so like I think to be fair, like you just can't simulate that. I think the best of that, like what I do a lot in my training is I do a lot of visualization. So it's like when I'm going when I'm doing hill repeats, like I imagine myself and I try picture I try to paint the picture in my head of what it's going to be like in the race and to kind of capture that feeling like where your legs hurt and you feel like you can't do anything more, but you just see like the breakaway that you're trying to get on. And I think like motor pacing can kind of simulate like the speed and like that kind of rush you feel like, all right, motor pacing behind a car is like uh, being in a field, but then being behind a scooter is like uh, being in a breakaway. So it's hard to kind of simulate like the more like the tactical aspect of it. And so that's like where like we were able to have our training camp in Vermont last year. So we were able to do like these race simulations where it's like, um, some guys, what we'll do is like we did like some like the older guys could only use their little rings, so 36, 14, and then the uh, first years got to use their 50. They could use whatever gear they wanted. And it's to kind of create these situations that are obviously like totally unfair, um, but it makes it so you have to think totally outside of the box. And it's also like we would do like 4v1 situations, 3v2, uh, 3 on 3, and we would just do circuits. So unfortunately, like, you kind of need a group of guys or a group of people to be able to do that kind of specific things. Um, and now I think it's becoming safer um, to be able to ride with other people now. So that's kind of like what my recommendation would be in that sense. Um, but yeah, I think visualization is for sure huge. And there's like a lot of like TED talks that I've listened to and watched that, and they talk about the science behind it. And it's like, they talk about like in basketball players imagining like, um, you can have just as much um, – the training is almost just as beneficial as doing it, actually physically doing it, than when you do it, uh, imagine doing it. So uh, practice doing a free throw, for example, and just like um, thinking about the breathing, um, like thinking about thinking is a huge thing. <laughs> um, so here we are. It's 
you know, the beginning of July, Nationals has been canceled. All everything from March until this point has been canceled. What's left on the schedule for you? I mean, what are you what conceivably is realistically attainable for you for 2020? Yeah, so beginning of the year, they still had nationals set for July or whenever, end of June when it usually is. Um, at that point, I was totally like, yeah, I'll do nationals as long as it's able to still happen and everything's still safe. And then they said, all right, we have to push it to September. And once that happened, like I talked to my coach and it's like, so I wanted to be able, I wanted to be in Europe at that point. And once they moved it to the first week in September, I had made the decision that if it was still going to happen, I wouldn't be able to go. I would be in Europe and that's just something I'd have to miss. And that'd be a sacrifice I'd make to try target the world championship. Um, so now that that's even been just thrown out of the basket, um, there is racing. So I know that German and Swiss nationals happened last week. Slovenian nationals happened a couple weeks ago. They're going to have a nation's cup in Hungary, I believe at the end of August. Um, for me, that's, that's not necessarily something I'll participate in. Um, my plan right now is to do three weeks at altitude, go home for a week. And then I, because I'm a Norwegian citizen, I have a European citizenship. So, uh, it's easier for me, I believe at this point to be able to go because, uh, I can travel under that passport. Um, so I plan on going to Europe around like August 15th, uh, and I'll do another altitude camp there, um, in Switzerland. Um, and I plan on just kind of creating my own camp there and, um, preparing by myself. Um, and I'll be in, I'm hoping to kind of be in the Indian Valley, but also maybe spending some time on the world's course closer to Luzanne, um, and just being able to dial that in, um, but then there is another one day, 1.1 in Switzerland, and then um, GP Rublin, which uh, we did last year with the national team. So those will be uh, the two races that I have planned right now to do before Worlds. And at Worlds, are you targeting road race or time trial? Yeah, so uh, a lot of people uh, ask me that question. So uh, I'll be targeting both. Um, I think the time trial is very well suited for me. It's very flat. Uh, the way the valley's shaped is it's either going to be a headwind or a tailwind. Uh, so it'll be very fast either way. Um, and then also the road race, it's only 120 kilometers. It's relatively short compared to last year um, for a junior race. And there's three climbs that we do. Uh, and they're about 10 to 12 minutes. So um, for me, a lot of people kind of look at me and they think like, there's no way you can do that. Uh, but I really hope to surprise a lot of people. Um, and I think it's really just perfect. Mm -hmm. So what are, you know, juniors in your position, final year of the junior ranks, you know, looking ahead towards U23 and potentially joining a pro team. I mean, how are you navigating that future knowing that, look, you had these great, amazing results at the beginning of the year in those, you know, Tour the Sunday Highlands and then Valley of the Sun, you know, you won the race as a junior. That doesn't happen very often. In fact, it sounds like that's never happened before, but how do yep. you then, um, navigate the lack of racing when trying to find a team for next year yeah so again it's like it's really hard i think i'm in a more fortunate uh situation than a lot of my teammates and a lot of my friends because uh i have a lot of results from last year so a lot of those connections that i've kind of already made with teams so in that uh instance it's a little easier for me um but it also just then it comes down to the amount of training so uh, sharing training peaks accounts and being able to show data, uh, show that I'm not just sitting on the couch, but in fact, I'm tra I'm doing a lot, tr a lot more training and, um, yeah, it's been, it's been interesting. Um, but at the same time, I've kind of created this kind of team around me of, uh, past alumni from hot tubes, but also, um, just the connections that, um, Toby has able, uh, to, he's been able to make connections with um, other people that have kind of helped guide me. Um, I mean, this situation is very unique. I think that there's probably, uh, there would be a lot more offers or a lot more opportunity if it was a normal year. Um, but like I said, like a month ago, it's, it seemed like there were only gonna be two teams that were really gonna be in a stable place. But now it's looking a lot better. Um, 
but at the same time, like we're in a generation where it's becoming very normal for juniors to go straight to the world ranks. And I think it's now like six or five or six guys that have done it. Um, and I think it really just comes down to like, it has to be the, like going from junior straight to the world tour. Um, it's not to say that U23 racing isn't hard enough. Um, but I think that it's definitely now with the way training is like you can have a coach on the other side of the world, uh, and you can have, you, you would have never met the person. Um, and the way kind of training has, um, evolved. And I think it really just depends on like, it has to be the, it has to 100% be the right fit. And so like I talked to Quinn often and it's interesting to kind of hear his perspective and like see kind of what, what it's been because he's made that transition. Um, and then I also hear like guys that have done the U23 and then made the step. And it's really just down to like personal preference on it. Like I think there's no real right or wrong answer. It's just really what's right for you. Uh, and the tough part is like you may not know that until that like you, you make a decision. Um, so for me, I think I could do either. Um, I've, I have the opportunity to go either way. Um, but right now I'm just trying to think really, uh, what is the right choice? And I really want to make sure it's the right fit. When are you going to make that decision? (laughs) Um, my hope is, uh, to make it after worlds. Yeah. Uh, that's kind of what I've told some teams is that, um, it's not that I'm saying no. Uh, but it's that I want, I would truly just want to wait until there's racing, um, and wait until after worlds to make a decision. I mean, that's, that says a lot about that ride you had last year, then that it was, you know, and your season in general, that it was strong enough to catch the up, catch the eye of enough pro team directors that you have those opportunities. I mean, I was watching that race. That was a very impressive ride you had. I mean, Quinn having won a number of races, I think we were all, we had a lot of us had our eyes on him, but the mm. fact that you rode the front for so long created that split and then were still able to hold on for third after doing so much work for uh, your teammate. I feel like, uh, you know, there was a really head turning eye popping um, performance. I mean, now here almost a year later, what, what do you remember from that race? Obviously there's the, the wind, the rain, the tactics, but what are still the vivid memories from that ride? Yeah, so it's like interesting, like like you said though, it's like I feel like a year ago, like no one really knew who I was, I think. And that's kinda how it felt, but like that day changed so much for me. Um so like I can like in my head I, I can still go back and I can replay like what like even the breakfast I had, um, even like the night before, like I remember like sitting around with all the guys and I think we were we actually like went to the we went and hung out with like the Dutch team and we were all playing Xbox. Um, and we were just like joking around with them like, Hey, like what are you guys planning on doing? <laughs> um, but then like we went to like our own hotel room and we were just like talking to each other and it's almost like we had kind of said like, all right, we want, we want to try to break up the race. Like at this point, try to get at least two or three guys in the move and then be able to drive it. And then, have a small group going to the circuits. Um, and that was just like the plan we made with each other. So then when it actually happened in the race, it was like, <laughs> it almost felt like surreal because it was like, how could it play out so, so close to our plan? Except for it was a little bit different because that first climb that you see, uh, we go over a bridge and that's really when it started pouring rain. Um, we went over that and it was still like a group of like, 35 or 40 guys so it was like way more than we had expected um but it didn't necessarily like put us in a panic or anything we just knew that we had some more work to do um so it was at that point michael and i were just still at the front we had quinn protected in the uh, out of the wind um and it wasn't it was kind of like a unexpected place because there's this really kind of gradual uh it's really exposed uh climb and i think we even had matthew at the front there and he had kind of pulled off and it's a really fast descent and it was weird. It was just like all of a sudden we had this separation. It was Michael, me and Quinn and we're just like, Quinn just like said, it's like, all right, let's do it. (laughs) Um, and that's where, um, Michael pulled off and then I cranked it up on just one of these rollers. And it's like, you look at the profile of that course and it's like, looks pretty like rolly kind of flat, but it's like, 
that course is like relentless. It's just up and down. And like I had only recon the first like 120 kilometers. And I looked at like the course like on the computer, but I didn't really realize how hard it was going to be going into the circuits until we were in the race. Um, and like the other thing like that I really just vividly remember from that race is like you have the helicopters and like you have the sheep, <laughs> like the helicopters flying so low, the sheep are just going crazy and you can like you can almost feel the helicopter coming down on you. Um, but at the same time, like the biggest thing that I felt helped me get through that race and like deal with all the nerves was like I just kind of told myself like, look, it's no different than any other race. Um, it's just me, my bike and all the guys that I've raced all year. Uh, so at that point, like I didn't really try to treat it any differently. Um, and I think that's definitely like what kind of helped me, um, stay within myself. Uh, and then also that definitely helped me put out the performance I did. Yeah. And the, you know, the fact that it was with this group of guys that you raced, throughout the year with, I also felt like was a, was a help, you know, in, in the post-race interviews, both Quinn and Billy, uh, Billy Ennis, the team coach, and a number of people said, you know, one of the unfortunate elements of the U S junior program last year was that due to the cut in funding, it was a small group of guys who were, who were able to go over and race. But the good thing that came out of that was that you all became very familiar with each other's racing style and, very comfortable in the races with each other. And I just remember watching that race and it really seemed to be the case. You know, you had good communication and really good coordination and it did these crazy junior races where they're very aggressive. It really right. seems like that paid off. Yeah. I mean, it's also like there's, there's communication without communicating and that's something that you really can't teach and it's very unique and it's just, um, we were able to develop that kind of relationship with each other. Um, and it's also, like funny, like a lot of people may not know this or they may know this, but there was like a lot of, I don't want to say drama, but there was like, there's a lot of controversy between like the riders. And it's like, yeah, Quinn was favorite, favorited, but it's like, well, what happens if like, I want I want to go for the win. And also like at, at that point, like Luke was also in really good form, but he broke his collarbone. So like, even though, like, we were, like, this really uh, tight um, group together on that day, it's, like, it's not always like that. And I think that's also, like, something that people may not realize. But uh, at the end of the day, is it's, like, you just have to – it's ultimate, It's all about coming together on that particular day. Um, yeah, that's a question I was going to ask for you, too, which is, you know, the interesting thing is that a lot of, you know, you guys are racing together on the world's team, but then, like, at U.S. Nationals or at some of these races early in the season, you know, you race for hot tubes, all these other guys race for Lux, and there seems to be kind of, you know, a real rivalry between those programs. How do you manage the um, relationship there of being rivals with these guys in some races and racing against each other, but then having to come together in these international events and be teammates? How did you navigate that? Right. So I think that's what like made the team like so successful at Worlds is like all the other national teams, they deal with the same situation. It's like all these guys are on different trade teams and they have to come and race together on national teams. So that's kind of the difference between the U.S. team and all the other nations on that particular day is that we were kind of able to take all that political and um, the arguments and we were able just to put that away and we were able to say, all right, we're one team today. And we're going to race for the win. And this is how this is how we're going to do it. And like, it's not easy to do that because there's months of racing where it's just head to head uh, clashing. And like last year, like um, it was just a lot of the times it's Quinn versus me. And I think it wasn't easy uh, whatsoever. But ultimately, like I look back at it now, and it, I think that's definitely what drove me to uh, be the kind of rider and. Uh, for me to kind of reach the potential that I did um, because it's just like, all right, if I'm going to beat him, I have to be better than him. And I think he thought the same thing. And it's just like that just uh, continuously just brought up the level between each other. And I think we definitely raised the bar in that sense uh, because it was like almost every race, it came down to a breakaway with him and me. Um, and it was just uh, the kind of riding style that we kind of share in common is it's just like, we're just going to thrash each other until um, the one guy just can't, he can't move his legs anymore. 
Um, and that's like the style of racing that like I really like, and I know Quinn does too. Uh, it's just like an arm wrestling match. Um, and so that's definitely like, it definitely pushed me out of my comfort zone last year. And I think that definitely helped me like to, even to like this day and it continues to push me. Um, but like you said, like a lot of teams aren't able to do that and it is really kind of, um, it just takes them out of contention. Uh, on a day like Worlds where it's a one-day race where everything has to go right. Well, Magnus, I really appreciate it. You know, we're going to continue to follow you as you prep for Worlds, and uh, I think we're all crossing our fingers that Worlds is held and everyone is safe and happy and that you are able to have a good ride there. And I'm glad to hear that it sounds like, well, this season has been a setback in that there hasn't been a ton of racing. It hasn't necessarily derailed the trajectory of your career because that was definitely something I was worried about was oh my gosh this is our next great guy and here the the season is off and he's not going to be able to show himself as much as we would like to during this uh, 2020 season but it sounds like things might be in the works already all right Magnus Sheffield thanks so much for coming on the Vela News podcast listeners thanks for tuning in we will catch up with you next week next week